There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Longshot, a production of McClatchy Studios, and iHeartRadio. I'm executive producer Davin Coburn. This is a bonus feature for Return Man, taking you behind the scenes of a reporting process that lasted more than three years. In researching Jim Duncan's death, lead reporter Brett McCormick and the rest of our production team wanted to better understand the actions taken or not by Lancaster authorities following the shooting, and to learn more about how police in that era approached their jobs in general. We're continuing our coverage tonight here on WCCO and CBSN Minnesota. Protesters have set fire to Minneapolis's third police precinct. Policing has evolved over time in its tactics and its priorities. And as we've all seen during recent nationwide protests, the role that officers play in their communities is the subject of much debate. The third precinct is where the officers involved in the George Floyd arrest uh, were headquartered. My initial reaction was if we changed the date we could be having a conversation about the Jim Duncan shooting from a year ago. Seth Stoughton, who you heard in the show, has a unique perspective on that. He was a police officer himself before becoming a lawyer. I got sucked right back into studying from an academic and legal perspective all of the stuff that I had previously done as an officer. And he now teaches at the University of South Carolina School of Law. Officers get involved in a wide variety of very different situations, and good policing is context-specific. Stoughton's expertise formed the basis for a TEDx talk he gave there in Columbia. On another level, though, we could identify a set of principles that we could use to evaluate policing in almost any context. 
principles that shape the police function itself, what officers do and how they do it, the way that officers view their job, and the way that they relate to community members. Return Man producer Rachel Wise and I sat down with Stoughton in his office to learn more about the history of policing, lessons today's officers can take from Jim Duncan's case, and what Stoughton says is the best way forward for law enforcement in general through an approach known as guardian policing. This conversation has been edited for length and clarity. All right. Oh, boy. My life in a nutshell. Um, I grew up in South Florida. I moved to North Florida to go to college, to go to uh, Florida State, the, now, the Florida State University. And I was working as a martial arts instructor at the time. And one of the students at the martial arts studio where I worked was the public information officer for the local police department. He encouraged me to do ride-alongs with him, which I did to start volunteering in victim services at the police department, and eventually to apply as a reserve officer. I was there five years. I ultimately left the city police department for a job as a state investigator. I was there for more than two and a half years, and in an effort to continue to expand my career horizons, essentially went to law school at the University of Virginia. I clerked for a judge for a year. I was lucky enough to get an academic fellowship at Harvard Law School for two years, and then came here to the University of South Carolina School of Law, where I've been, well, this is my sixth year here. What was your initial gut reaction when you heard the basic overview of the facts here? There are aspects of it that are obviously different because it happened so long ago. But the issues that it raises are exactly the same as a lot of the issues that we see and a lot of the concerns that are brought to a head by the Walter Scott shooting in North Charleston or the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson or the Tamir Rice shooting in Cleveland and so on. There are questions about transparency and accountability. There are questions about whether there was a sufficient investigation. And the the reason that that's a little depressing is because the conversations that we're having now about policing aren't new. They've actually been fairly steady going back at least as far as the 1830s and 40s as American policing really started. The modern era of policing in this country kicked off. There have been concerns about police abuses and overreach and unfairly targeting certain population groups about unaccountable extrajudicial killings and the like. So the shooting and the individual incident may seem like an aberration, but one, it's not clear that as a factual matter, it is or was that unusual. And two, certainly with regard to the the concerns that it raises, those are not at all unusual. And the timeline you laid out back to the 1830s and 40s, very different place in American history, very different place in South Carolina history, yeah. but apparently not a very different place in these questions about police interactions with communities of color. And I think it's inevitable. I think we will always have those conversations. I don't think there's a way to alleviate everyone's concerns about the role that the police play. And it's because the police exist at the very point of tension between society's need for order to be protected from people who do bad things, to apprehend people who do bad things, keeping in mind that society's need for order requires us to 
allow the government to infringe on our freedoms in different ways, to search our cars, to use force. On the other hand, we also demand in a democracy to be protected from government overreach. How much freedom are we willing to give up to get both my individual interest in freedom and also society's interest in order? That's not a question that has a stable answer. At any given point of time, in any given community, there are going to be multiple perspectives about how to balance those priorities. So to a certain extent, it's very natural that we've always had these conversations. They're inevitable. Especially in this place. And I think about the Confederate flag oh, and yeah. the conversation that happened about that and this concept mm. of the government should not be overstepping its bounds. Yeah. And I can give you a, a historical example, right? Um, back a long time ago, before and at the time that American police agencies were really kicking off in cities like Philadelphia, New York, and Boston, right? The big cities were the first to adopt what we now would consider a police force. South Carolina and a number of the other states had slave acts that either allowed or required the government to put together groups of usually white land and slave owning men to round up fugitive slaves and to effectively prevent slave uprisings by intimidating the black population. A number of plantation owners didn't like those laws not because they wanted to look out for slaves' rights. It's because they didn't want the government interfering in what they viewed as a plantation and slave owner's prerogative of disciplining their own slaves. They didn't want the government to get involved in that. That was something for me as a man to deal with and not something that the government should intervene. So even when we're talking about that really disturbing history that I think it's important for us to acknowledge as one of the precursors to modern policing, we still see this resistance or this tension between how much do we want to allow the government to infringe and how much do we want to keep the government out. In the 60s and 70s, when Duncan would have been growing up and then when he died, can you offer sort of a general description of police procedures and the sort of tactical and training revolution of that era? So there are a couple of things to keep in mind about that era. Um, when policing was first introduced in this country, it was introduced as a very localized endeavor, which of course it is today. We don't have one police agency in the state of South Carolina. We have more than 200 police agencies. When policing originated in the larger cities and spread to the mid-sized cities in starting in the 1840s and getting into the 1850s and 60s, the officer's job was in large part to make sure that their local elected official stayed in power. Because if someone new got voted in, they would fire all the police officers. And then through a political patronage system, they would hire an all new group of police officers, many of whom would pay the political patron for the privilege of getting hired as a police officer. Starting in the very late 1800s and into the early 1900s, there was a police reform or police professionalism movement. The reform era sought to shift policing from a politically involved constituent services type 
endeavor to being primarily about law enforcement and crime fighting. Officers were crime fighters first and foremost. There are all kinds of reasons why that was actually wrong. Crime started going up and police agencies couldn't handle it. So the image that they had been selling to the public, we are crime fighters, let us do our thing. Well, if you're crime fighters, you're doing an awful job of it. So that perspective started to shift in the 60s and 70s, in part because of public pressure during the civil rights movement. So that started what we now refer to as the tactical revolution in policing making sure that there is now a book so that officers can go by the book. But that was a slow process. It didn't penetrate fully. Like a lot of things in policing, it started at the largest agencies and kind of trickled down to smaller agencies, which ultimately gets us to Jim Duncan and the Lancaster event. And these questions of trust and oh, yeah. faith. Oh, yeah. In the aftermath of a critical incident like a shooting, there is always going to be uncertainty. When Officer Wilson shot and killed Michael Brown, there were different pieces of information flying all over the place. And two narratives came out of that. And one of those narratives was that Michael Brown had violently attacked Officer Wilson and then was returning, aggressively approaching a second time purportedly to violently attack him again at the time he was shot and killed. The second narrative is that Officer Wilson shot Michael Brown while Michael Brown's hands were up and he was surrendering. After that shooting, I would hazard a guess that anyone who wasn't an eyewitness did not have facts to figure out which narrative was correct, which narrative they should believe. So one of the big questions for me is not just what happened in that shooting. One of the big questions is why did so many people in Ferguson and the surrounding area and across the country believe the second narrative? Why did so many people think, yeah, I could totally see that an officer would shoot and kill an unarmed black man whose hands were raised in surrender? The answer to that question is lack of trust. People in Ferguson, people in the St. Louis area, and many people across the country saw the shooting of an unarmed black man while surrendering as consistent with their perspective of policing. So when I see the Jim Duncan shooting story, it raises that same question of trust and it raises a question of power. Who in that story trusted the police and who had the power to express that trust or distrust. And I don't just mean express it like saying it, I mean express it through their actions. In Ferguson, you had a lot of people who distrusted the police and were empowered to show that distrust by marching, by protesting, by holding vigils. I don't think you had quite that same dynamic in the 60s. We'll be right back after the break. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. From BBC Radio 4. 
Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I was out in Lancaster yesterday afternoon. I went by Duncan's house where he was living at the end of his life. And for a long time, that house has been vacant. And there was a car in the driveway this time. So I went up and I knocked on the door. There's a new owner and her name is Camelia Funderburk. And I asked her if she knew anything about who had lived in the home before or this case. She had not known anything about this. She'd lived in Lancaster all her life. But I... I told her about it. He played for the Baltimore Colts, and he actually died in the Lancaster police station. And I would like to just play you her reaction yeah, sure. and get your reaction to it. Yep. Camelia Funderburk declined to let us use her voice in this podcast, but Stoughton's reaction to hearing the tape spoke volumes. Yeah, that's... She had never heard the story before. <laughs> The sum total of her knowledge about this was you outlining the facts for her. And it's fascinating, isn't it? And a little frightening that her immediate conclusion is, I don't believe that. It's not completely crazy, right? Like people absolutely have in the course of American history walked up to officers and attempted to wrestle their gun out of their holsters 
So why not believe it? I would hazard a guess it's because either she doesn't trust police now, which may be part of the story, or she thinks about what policing was like at the time in the 1960s and says, there's no way that I'm going to trust that institution. That's a distrust issue. Even then, if Duncan's death did happen exactly as it's described, based on what we know of how police investigated the incident, there are critics, obviously, who say that they sort of invited these kinds of questions and second guessing based on what seemed like a perfunctory kind of an investigation of the incident. Is that fair? The criticism? The criticism? Absolutely, that's fair. Well, let's be a little bit cautious. Investigations into police shootings in the 60s do not look like what should be investigations of police shootings today. Unfortunately, there are at least some investigations of police shootings even today that would have looked pretty normal back in the 60s. That's not because the investigations in the 60s were so good. That's because even today we still have some pretty shitty investigations into officer-involved shootings. There wasn't the same demand for that in the 60s. And what demand there was was not from a part of the population that really had the power to make that demand a reality. Since the summer of 2014, when we've had a number of high-profile police killings, one of the reasons that we've seen such a spotlight being shined on policing is because of video. Because people who otherwise would not have believed that police could do these things are now looking at their phones and being shown effectively incontrovertible proof that in fact police do on at least some occasions engage in these entirely and obviously inappropriate and egregious actions. And then you have people, especially from the black community or other communities of color, who say, of course that's possible. We've known about stuff like that since um, slavery. That's not a surprise to us. Can you talk about what sort of an investigation might have been done? What sort of capabilities they would have had, technological or... Yeah. Okay. So there are things that we could do today that wouldn't necessarily have been an option at the time. And I'll give you a very superficial example. Today, it would probably be the case that the police station would have had a security camera rolling. It would probably be pretty simple to just pull the tape. So what would an investigation look like? Well, the first sort of investigations 101, which was as true in the 1960s as it is today, is you separate the witnesses and get statements from them. There were multiple officers around, as I understand, And you're going to want to separate them so they don't cross-contaminate each other's interviews. We're not just going to say, go in with a list of questions and get specific answers. We want to have more open-ended interviews. We want to engage in what today is called cognitive interviewing. And then we compare those statements to make sure that they're consistent. And when we find inconsistencies, we look for reasons for those inconsistencies. But we'd also be looking at other pieces of evidence. We would, for example, do a gunshot residue test, particularly back at the time with a revolver. When the revolver goes off, um, sorry, I don't have a revolver, I don't think. (laughs) I I didn't think to ask how many firearms might be in this room right now. Um, I have a taser. Oh, okay. Uh, Very plastic. Uh, You know, the sad thing is I, I use this as a prop in class sometimes, and every time I use it as a prop in class, I feel like I have to say... The gun you are about to see is not real. Please don't come up and tackle me. 
I didn't used to say that, and now I kind of have to, which is uh, troubling. Okay, yeah. so um, this is a plastic uh, replica of a semi-automatic firearm, and very basically, um, in a real semi-automatic firearm, this piece here would come out. That would be the magazine. You would load bullets into the magazine. A revolver is an old-timey wheel gun, and the wheel would have a little thing that you'd pull out, and then it would fall open, and you could put your five or six bullets in, and then you'd close the wheel. And when you pulled the trigger, the firing pin would hit the bullet and send it through the barrel, and then the wheel would rotate by one-fifth or one-sixth of a turn to line the next bullet up with the barrel. A semi-automatic like this will eject gunshot residue, burnt powder, a little bit of unburnt powder, the chemicals from the explosion of the bullet in the chamber. A wheel gun, a revolver, is even more open. So you're going to have even more gunpowder residue coming out of the back, spraying off to the sides, obviously some coming out of the front with the bullet, coming out of the muzzle with the bullet, um, but there might be a lot more gunpowder residue to test for. If you have no gunpowder residue on someone's hands, you can be pretty sure that that person either was not the shooter or they were the shooter, but they were wearing multiple sets of gloves that came up to their forearms that someone took off afterwards, right? So in a case like this, I would have wanted to see them test Jim Duncan's hands for gunshot residue. And if it turns out that he didn't have gunshot residue, then that would have suggested that he was not the shooter here. Also, I mentioned that when the bullet is fired, gunshot powder, which is on fire, right, which is in the process of exploding, comes out of the front of the gun. It propels the bullet forward. Essentially, when the firearm is too close to someone, the powder that's expelled from the front, the chemicals and the residue that's expelled from the front, can penetrate the skin. That's called stippling. And what we now know, but I'm not sure we would have known in the 1960s, is how to measure approximately a burn pattern from a particular gun or the stippling pattern from a particular gun and estimate about how far away the gun was at the time. Also, the position and angle of the wound. And this is something that I would have expected them to have been able to identify uh, it's not always possible to line up with perfect accuracy the penetration pattern of a bullet and thus to backtrack that and say, okay, well, if the bullet penetrated here, then it clearly came off at this angle. But we can rule out certain things, right? We can say, okay, well, it definitely came from somewhere over here as opposed to somewhere over here. If they're examining this gunshot wound and the person is right-handed, but it's from over here, then we have some questions. It's not impossible, but it becomes a little bit more improbable. When you start to put together things like distance and angle, then you can maybe, and I'm emphasizing maybe, start to say this looks consistent with, or this does not look consistent with a self-inflicted gun job wound. We'll be back after the break. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. 
With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Then we get into the questions of reports and what oh, would be sure. written down, what would yeah, be recorded, yeah. what are current best practices, and yeah. what? how do you anticipate they might have differed from what was happening in a rural police station <laughs> in the early 1970s? Yeah. Best practices now are largely officers report everything. An officer's report is their representation of the facts as best as they can make it. When you're talking about an officer being involved in a critical incident, particularly a police shooting, the rules change a little bit. Ideally, you still want the officer to give a statement and you still want them to give a statement fairly promptly. But a lot of agencies now allow officers to either not write their own report or to delay the providing of a statement or a report for reasons that I think are, are largely flawed. But it is common practice. We're going to give the officer time to decompress a little bit, maybe time to have a representative present with them, a lawyer or a union rep or something like that. The purported facts of this case is that this wasn't an officer-involved shooting. 
applying modern standards, I would expect officers to write reports as if this was a suicide that they had witnessed. Back in the day, at a smaller agency, at a more rural agency, at an agency that may not have been leading the charge of police reform and professionalization, uh, a lot of shit happened that never got reported. And so is where today we might have this massive case file. Hundreds of pictures, hundreds of pages of statements from officers, of reports, uh, of witnesses, of forensic reports. Um, uh, yeah. In a case like this, if you had anything, you might have a one line or one paragraph write up in the watch log at 8.03 p.m., one man later identified as Jim Duncan entered, attempted to take an officer's firearm and shot himself, period, done. If you had that, nobody's going to jail. The officers are never going to have to testify against anyone because the only bad actor here, so to speak, is the decedent. Why bother? That leaves the door open for a lot of questions about how authoritative that narrator is. Yeah, it does. But, you know, at the time, officers didn't feel the need to present an authoritative narrative because their verbal explanations would be enough. At least it would be enough for everyone who they cared about. And, and I want to emphasize that's not policing specific, right? We constantly make divisions based on differences or perceived differences. And we're using them to adjust how much deference we give the other person and how much deference we expect them to give us. There are some problems that are particularly acute in the policing context when both people expect more deference than the other one is giving them. Social psychologists call this an asymmetric deference norm. The officer might say, this person should defer to me because I am the authority. The other person might say, the officer should defer to me in at least some respect because I am a taxpayer or something like that. The potential for conflict comes up when the officer may not just view lack of deference as something that is upsetting. They may view it as something that requires a physical response. And I can think of no better example than the Sandra Bland traffic stop. Hello, ma'am. Uh, with the takes high, I'm told the reason for your stop is you didn't fail. You failed to signal your lane change. You got your driver's license insurance with you? After an initial interaction, the officer walked back to his car, wrote out what we later learned is a warning ticket, walked back up to Sandra Bland's car, and one of the first things he said was, you seem irritated. You okay? I'm waiting on you. you this is your job. I'm waiting on you. What do you want me to do? Oh, you seem very irritated. I am. I, I really am. I feel like this cab is what I'm getting the ticket for. I was getting out of your way. You were speeding up, tailing me. So I move over, and you stop me. So, yeah, I am a little irritated, but that doesn't stop you from giving me a ticket. So. If that had been me in my newer model car dressed in my business suit, I think the cop would have, again, unconsciously and without realizing it, given me a little more deference than he gave Sandra Bland. But what he did with Sandra Bland is he waited four seconds. And he said, are you done? You asked me what was wrong, and I told you. Okay. So now I'm done, yeah. Okay. In other words, he was telling her, I'm not deferring to you, that I don't care about or respect your concerns. They were in a staring contest. And the problem with a staring contest in this context is not who blinks first. It's who has the power to swing first. And that's the officer. 
I'm giving you a law for to turn around. Why will you not tell you me what's not going complying. on? I'm not complying because you just pulled me out of my car. Turn around. And the idea that a guy coming from Baltimore at the time where he was royalty, where he... Yeah, where he might have expected quite a bit of deference. Again, I want to emphasize I'm not saying that that is what happened, but if Jim Duncan, the football star who is used to deference and even a degree of hero worship in Baltimore comes down to South Carolina, the potential for explosive conflict is pretty obvious. There's an interesting parallel here again that in a lot of ways, NFL players are at the forefront of this conversation about police interactions with communities of color. Yes. Yes. I God, yes. Look at, I, oh my God, the whole, the kneeling, the, the Colin Kaepernick's, um, yeah, look at the way that, that we have responded as a society. Look at the way that we have responded to other sports figures taking stances on things. No one got upset when Chuck Norris started his Kick Drugs Out of America program. These are the faces of America's future. Now, more than ever, they need our help. Hi, I'm Chuck Norris. I want to talk to you about our kids. What the hell does Chuck Norris know about drugs? Stay in your lane, Chuck. That's why I'm here to ask your support for Kick Drugs Out of America. Of course, that would be absurd to say, right? But Colin Kaepernick, he should just shut up and play. Any case like this, whether it was Ferguson, whether it was Lancaster, it's frustrating to try and pick apart because we don't know if this was a cover-up. Yeah. We don't know if this was actually a straightforward open and shut kind of a thing. Or if it was a straightforward open and shut kind of a thing that was just handled really badly. Yeah. Yeah. What can we learn from this historical incident that we can apply today? And one of the things I can tell you just very superficially is we need accurate and legitimate investigations at risk of repeating you. There are some predictable possibilities to explain what happened. It happened the way that the police later said it did. And they acted appropriately in the aftermath. It happened the way the police said it did, and they botched the aftermath. It did not happen the way that the officers said it did. And there is some ineptitude at best or active cover-up at worst. We don't know. That's, again, where trust comes in. That's, again, why trust is so incredibly important. If I'm the police chief, I need to be able to say, we messed up. Or the circumstances, the facts, the evidence certainly suggest that we messed up. Here's what I'm going to do immediately. And here's what I hope to do in the midterm and the long term to make sure that we stay on top of this. By acknowledging missteps, police agencies can build that trust step by painful step. So that when something happens, and it's not a matter of if, it is a matter of when, when something happens in which there is ambiguity or uncertainty that can ignite a fire in the community, when the police chief steps forward and says, this is not as bad as it looks, they'll have some trust that if it was as bad as it looks, that would be acknowledged. They're not going to have the same questions then that we have now about the Jim Duncan shooting. I'm Davin Coburn. Return Man is a production of The Herald, McClatchy Studios, and iHeartRadio. Brett McCormick is the lead reporter, and the show is produced by Matt Walsh, Kara Tabor, Kata Stevens, 
and Rachel Wise. I'm the executive producer for McClatchy Studios. The executive producer for iHeartRadio is Sean Tytone. For lots more on this story, go to heraldonline.com slash returnman. If you have any additional information about Jim Duncan's life or death, email us at returnman at heraldonline.com. To continue supporting this kind of work, visit heraldonline.com slash podcasts and consider a digital subscription. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare i'm johnny b good the host of the podcast creating a con the story of bitcoin this podcast dives deep into the story of ray trapani and his company centratech I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.